right, good morning. morning. Hope everybody's doing well. It's good to be back up here after two weeks of uh, guest speakers. I hope you guys really appreciated what Peter Scalzo and uh, Phil Beatty had to say over the last two weeks. I know I did. I was able to listen to Phil this week, and uh, I really liked his message a lot. So we're in week two now of our Messages in the Miracles series, where we're looking at the miracles of Jesus in the book of John. And uh, last week, Phil kicked this series off uh, looking at the story of the healing of a man born blind. And uh, we're actually, we're going back to the first miracle in the book of John. Uh, We did things a little out of order because when I asked Phil to speak, I said, you can preach on anything you want. And then he said that he wanted to do this miracle that he had just preached on. I was like, oh, well, that's convenient because that's actually in the series that we're about to do. So we went a little out of order. But now, from now on, we're actually going to be going in sequence. And we're starting with the very first of Jesus's miraculous signs. So when God came to earth in the form of a man, uh, the man that we now call Jesus Christ, Uh, this is the the first time that Jesus really began to unveil his glory, to reveal his divinity uh, to to the world, to reveal that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Now, if you heard what I just said, and you had no familiarity at all with uh, the Gospel of John, and then I asked you, so what do you think Jesus' first demonstration of his glory was? What do you think was the first miraculous sign that he performed? I don't think you would ever guess what it was. You know, because it wasn't healing someone of a disease. It wasn't raising somebody from the dead. It wasn't uh, parting a sea or levitating or transporting from one place to another. It was turning water into wine, which is something that seems kind of insignificant to me. Now, for any wine lovers out there, maybe you take issue with me saying that, but it doesn't seem like that significant of a thing. Uh, Because let's be honest, no one ever died for lack of wine, right? Um, So it seems like a weird choice for a miracle. Of all the things that God could do, why would God do that? Well, that's the question we're going to be focusing on on this morning. The title of the series is Messages in the Miracles, which means we're presuming that in these miracles that Jesus does, there are messages that we can discern, messages that he's trying to communicate about what God is like. So that's the question that we're going to be trying to answer. So let's read, read the story. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. 
He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. All right, so let's talk about what happened here. So Jesus and his disciples and his mom are all at a wedding, and Jesus' Jesus's mom becomes aware of a problem. They've run out of wine. Now, in those days, weddings were really, really big events. They would usually last a whole week, and you'd have the whole town show up. And it was quite a bit harder in those days to get a head count of how many people were going to be there, because it was a world without phones and internet and all that good stuff. And so it was hard to know exactly how much food and drink you were going to need in order to have enough for all the people that came. And, like today, people came to weddings with certain expectations about what things were going to be like. And one of those expectations was that there would be wine. And if any of those expectations weren't met, that could bring shame upon the bride and groom. Now, as most of you know, I am getting married this summer. And that means that I, I have been at least somewhat involved in planning a wedding. <laughs> uh, Sarah deserves far more credit for that than me, okay? But I have at least been involved and aware of, of what's been going on. So, <laughs> um, and I can, I can understand now the fear of shame and the potential for shame that is there when you're putting a wedding together. Um, because you feel this need to create an event that people are actually going to enjoy, you know? Um, because you know that people are going to be traveling, sometimes from a far distance, to come to an event where you are at the center of attention, whether you like it or not, you're going to be the center of attention, right? And that people are probably going to be bringing gifts for you or money. And so you feel this burden of responsibility that people have a good time. You know, I don't want people to come home from my wedding and be like, yeah, the food was awful, uh, the music stunk, the bathroom was disgusting, I was hot and uncomfortable all day, I tripped on a bocce ball. You know, that's embarrassing. That would bring some shame on me if nobody had a good time. So I can understand the fear of shame that comes with, with a wedding. And in Jesus' day, the fear of shame and the potential for shame would actually be much greater because his culture was much more of what you would call an honor-shame culture, where if, if you did something that was socially unacceptable, you could be ostracized after that uh, to a much greater degree than we are today. And so when, when the wine runs out in this story, the problem isn't just that the wine has run out, that, that is a problem, but the problem is also that this is going to be pretty socially devastating for the bride and the groom. Okay. So it's, it's a bigger problem than we might initially think. So Mary, Jesus' mother, recognizes this, and she knows that Jesus has the power to do something about this, which is interesting because this is the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. It's not like when Jesus was growing up, he was willy-nilly doing uh, crazy supernatural stuff, but Mary knows, she probably remembers what the angels told her, I'm sure she remembers what the angels told her, and she knows that Jesus has power and authority to take care of situations like this. So she says, hey, 
they're out of wine. And what happens next is weird, isn't it? Okay, because Jesus sounds kind of mean. He says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Which sounds to me like a no, right? But Mary doesn't take it as a no, right? She seems to think that he's still going to do something about it because she says, well, do whatever he tells you to the servants, presuming that he is going to tell them to do something. So I'm not sure why Mary doesn't take this as a no. Maybe I kind of see this interaction the way a lot of interactions between mothers and sons are. Like, could you do this, honey? And, and then he's like, oh, do, you have, do I have to? But then he just goes and does, does it anyway. You know, maybe that's imposing my own experiences too much on the text. But I feel like a lot of mom-son interactions are like that. Um, but anyway, whatever Jesus, Jesus does, Mary doesn't take it as a rejection of her request. But there's no doubt that there's reluctance on Jesus' part to do this. So why is there this reluctance? Well, there's a hint here that Jesus is thinking about his own death. Uh, you see how he says, my time has not yet come. What is that? My time has not yet come. Well, a more specific translation would be, my hour has not yet come. And there are other places in the Gospels where this same terminology is used to refer to Jesus' crucifixion and death. Okay, so the way that Jesus is speaking here is kind of the way that people speak in movies or on television when they know their death is coming and they say, you know, my, my time is coming. You know, where time refers to that moment of death. So it's kind of like Jesus is saying, the time for me to die is not yet. So I see this exchange as being something like, Mary says, son, could you help out here? They've run out of wine. And then Jesus says, oh, mom, why are you bothering me? It's not time for me to die yet. Now, <laughs> you might be thinking, okay, well, why does that, how does that follow from there? You know, um, Why would Jesus suddenly start talking about his death after being asked to do this? Well, when you think about it, it actually does make sense. Because Jesus knows that as soon as he starts doing supernatural, miraculous things, that's going to call attention to him, right? As soon as he starts doing these miraculous signs, people are, it's going to cause a stir. People are going to start following him. And the religious leaders are going to start to get concerned about him. And they're going to start, basically, if Jesus starts doing miracles, it's going to set the chain of events in motion that's going to lead to the religious leaders pushing for his crucifixion and his death. So he's a little reluctant to get that train moving because he knows where it's headed. And I think um, that the best way to understand what Jesus says there is, I know I'm going to die, but do we have to hurry up this process? That's the way, the way I would put it. Uh, you know, Jesus knew that he had come here in part to die for us. And Jesus knew that it was worth it to die for us because he loved us and because he wanted to be obedient to his father. But he was not looking forward to dying. He wasn't looking forward to the suffering. You know, just as in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, you know, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me. That was his prayer right before his arrest, which led to his crucifixion. And I think we see here Jesus embodying that same attitude that, man, I wish I didn't have to do this. 
You know, I wish I didn't have to die. He's willing to do it. He does do it because he loves us. But like any human being, which Jesus was 100% human at the same time as being 100% divine, he doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to suffer. Which I, I'm glad because that makes him more relatable. You know? Now, there's actually another reason to suspect that Jesus is thinking about his death here. And I cannot take credit for this insight. This is from pastor and author Tim Keller, who if you've been here for a while, you know I like to reference him quite a bit. But he makes this point, which is that we have to remember that Jesus is at a wedding. And when a single person, a person who is not married, is at a wedding, what do they usually think about? At some point, they usually think about the possibility of their own wedding, right? They, they ask questions of themselves, like, oh, I wonder if I'm ever going to get married. If I get married, I wonder who I'm going to get married to. I wonder what the wedding is going to be like. I wonder what the marriage is going to be like, right? Those are the qu- kinds of questions that single people tend to ask. Now, let's imagine that Jesus is sitting there and thinking about his wedding. Well, if Jesus was at a wedding and he started thinking about his wedding, that would lead him to think about his death. Because Jesus knows that he's not going to be able to have his wedding until after he has suffered and died. Now you might be thinking, wait, I don't remember Jesus getting married. That's not part of the story, is it? Well, in the New Testament, there's this metaphor that appears over and over again, which says that Jesus is like the groom, and we, all the people who are saved through him, are like his bride. And the consummation of all history What this is all leading towards, this story of history, is the wedding, okay, between Jesus, the groom, and us, his bride. And in fact, it's not entirely correct to say that that that's the metaphor. Really, what's the metaphor are weddings today. Okay, every wedding that takes place today is supposed to be something God has built into his creation to foreshadow that moment that's going to happen at the consummation of all of history when Jesus, the king, becomes united with us, his bride. And another way of thinking about that is the moment when God has union with his creation. That's what it's all supposed to be heading towards. And so you can imagine that if Jesus is at a wedding and he's thinking about what this wedding is supposed to foreshadow and signify, and he's thinking about his own own wedding, he would start to think about, man, I'm going to have to suffer and die before I can have my bride. And I can imagine that in that moment, he would feel a little overwhelmed. And in that moment, as he's sitting there, and he's reflecting about that, all of of a sudden his mom shows up and says, "Um, son, could you please start doing miracles that would set off the chain of events that will lead to your suffering and death? And he goes, ugh, do you have to involve me right now? My time hasn't come. So that's the best way I know to make sense of what's going on here. And yet, even so, even though Jesus knows the chain of events that this is going to set in motion, Jesus honors his mom's request, and he does a miracle. Turns the water into wine. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about the messages that Jesus is sending through this miracle. But before we do that, I feel the need to talk briefly about a topic that this passage inevitably raises— which is our relationship as Christians to alcohol. 
Okay, I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on this, but I just feel like this is something that inevitably uh, comes up with, a, with this passage. Now, there are some people in the church, and I am not specifically talking about this church. When I say the church, I'm talking about the church worldwide. Okay, there are some people in the church who think that all drinking is wrong. And um, those people, they come to this story, and they have a really tough time. Uh, and what some of them will try to do is they'll say, well, the wine that Jesus made, it wasn't alcoholic. He turned the water into Welch's. <laughs> um, but the fact of the matter is, that is reading something into the story that just isn't there. Um, we have every reason to think that if the people recognized this as wine, that it was alcoholic fermented drink. Um, especially if they recognized it as the best wine. And one reason uh, we have to think that is because in those days there wasn't such, any such thing as unfermented wine. You know, you try to keep grape juice, grape juice in a Middle Eastern climate in the days before refrigeration. <laughs> you, you can't do it. So if what Jesus made was recognized as wine, we have no reason to think that it wasn't alcoholic fermented drink. And that means that if we recognize Jesus as Lord, then it's pretty much impossible to argue that all alcoholic consumption is always sinful. Uh, that just doesn't make sense. Now, there are other people in the church, again, I'm not specifically talking about this church, just in general, uh, who look at this, so this story and really see it as, this is a license to party. You know, they see it as Jesus just giving this blessing on us to cut loose and drink up and indulge. And I just think that it's so important for us not to fall into either of these extremes. Okay. Um, it's not right for us to argue that all drinking is sinful. That's holding people to a standard that Jesus doesn't hold them to. But on the other hand, we really need to recognize that if we're going to drink, we have to do it in a responsible way. You know, just because Jesus turns the water into wine doesn't mean that he thinks you should have more than your fair share of the wine. Um, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but Ephesians 5.18 clearly says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now, we don't, we don't use that word debauchery too much these days, but basically what it means is to abandon restraint. Right? You, too much al alcohol, we know this, it causes you to lose your judgment uh, it causes you to lose your self-control. It causes you to do things or help, encourages you to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. And honestly, I'm tired of hearing people say things like, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to do what I did or said. I just had too much to drink. Um, sorry, I was drunk. I was tipsy. I, I didn't mean to start that fight or I didn't mean to make that pass or I didn't mean to get in that car. I wasn't thinking clearly. I just had too much to drink. And I think we need to recognize, if we're more on the side of the spectrum that sees this as a license to party, that there is a reason why people try to argue that Jesus turned the water into Welch's. You know, it's because they know, they've experienced the reality that drunkenness leads to debauchery. And I think it's important for us, when we when we uh, relate to alcohol, to remember certain things. So I have, I'm not trying to be a killjoy here, but I, I just 
feel like this list of statistics is important for us to keep in mind. Okay? We have to remember uh, alcohol is a factor in at least 50% of all sexual assaults on college campuses. I don't know what the, the statistics I found all had to do with college campuses. I don't know what it is out, off, off college campuses, but I have no doubt it's a significant factor in many uh, sexual assaults. Uh, in the United States, about 88,000 people die each year because of excessive alcohol use. 88,000 every year. And if you add up all the years of life that were probably lost, uh, from each of those deaths, it comes out to 2.5 million years of lost life a year. 2.5 million years of life that should have been lived but wasn't uh, due to excessive alcohol use. And uh, then I'm sure it comes as no surprise that about one-third of all car accident deaths are, are due to drinking and driving. And of course, one of the great tragedies is that so many of those are the person that wasn't drinking, you know, just the, the innocent bystanders. And of course, there's no way to measure the amount of emotional pain that alcoholism causes to individuals, families, and marriages. So again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a killjoy here. I'm really not. But I think it is so important for us not to take this, this miracle as a license to be irresponsible with alcohol. Okay? If we're going to drink, we have to do it in a way that, where we don't lose control of ourselves. And if we can't do that, you know, if our drinking encourages reckless behavior, violence, sexual misconduct, then we've got to cut it out of our lives. You know, even though Jesus turned the water into wine, uh, even though he did that, we never have a license to do those things. And we have to remember that. And that means that for some of us, not all of us, but for some of us, abstinence from alcohol may be the best way to go. For, for some of us, it is best for us not to enjoy the fruit of the vine until we can do it safely at the heavenly banquet. Um, not for all of us, but for some of us. And I just want to add that if you or a loved one is struggling with alcohol addiction, I really want to encourage you to seek help, to seek professional help, because God has something better for you. God does not want you to stay stuck in that, in that prison. So, we don't condemn drinking, but at the same time, we can't accept irresponsible drinking if we're followers of Jesus. All right, so let's talk now about the messages in this miracle. If you're taking notes, there's an outline with three points uh, that I encourage you to, to write down. Uh, so, first thing I see is that this miracle shows us that requests influence Jesus. Requests influence Jesus. The person who initiates the miracle here is not Jesus, right? It's Mary. She's the one who goes to Jesus hoping that he'll do something about this problem. And given the way that Jesus responds, I think we can be pretty confident that he wasn't about to do something about it on his own, right? It's because Mary says something. Without Mary's request, I don't think this miracle would have happened. There's a, a really interesting verse in the book of James which says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Now, that's not a promise that everything we ask God for we're going to receive. But what it does tell us very clearly is that there are things that we don't receive unless we make the request. 
to God. Uh, unless we, like Mary, are willing to go to Jesus and ask him for the thing it is that, that we want. So I want this miracle to be for us an encouragement to actually bring our request to God, to actually pray uh, for things, and to actually believe that those requests that we make can make a difference. And I want to take it a step further. Not only that, I want us to allow this miracle to encourage us to make requests even for unnecessary things. That might sound a little selfish, okay? but I really, I really think that's a part of the message of this miracle. Uh, well, that's the second point I want to make, which is uh, that oops, Jesus cares enough to do unnecessary things for us. Jesus cares enough to do nice, unnecessary things for us. You know, I, I asked earlier, uh, why would Jesus, Jesus' first sign, first miraculous sign, be something as insignificant as turning water into wine? Well, maybe that insignificance is part of the whole point. It's part of what we can learn from. You know, in the grand scheme of things, running out of wine at a wedding and the shame that might come upon a young couple for that is not a huge deal. In the grand scheme of things, it is not a huge deal. And yet, when Jesus is asked to do something about it, he does. And I want us to, to take that as an encouragement to let Jesus in to those unnecessary or mundane parts of our lives and, and to make requests for, for what we might want um, to him. You know, as I say this, I was hesitant to say this because I actually went through a period of time in my life where I just had a really hard time making requests to God. And part of the reason was because I had gone through a season where I just found myself becoming increasingly aware of all the suffering and pain in the world. Um, I don't know if I was just morbidly curious or if God was doing something in me, but I spent a lot of time on Netflix and on YouTube watching documentaries about people that are suffering from various um, uh, handicaps, uh, various uh, uh, genital, uh, so, oh my goodness, sorry, uh, various <laughs> genetic uh, problems. Everybody's going to remember that. That's the one part of the message everyone's going to remember. Um, every, various genetic defects, um, all kinds of um, uh, handicaps and that sort of thing, illnesses uh, that are chronic and that never go away. And I'd watch all this stuff and I'd think, man, I have nothing to complain about, you know? People have so many terrible things that they deal with. And then I became more aware of things in the world like problems of, of starvation, problems of lack of access to clean water, um, sanitation issues in, in, in whole, whole countries. And I just thought, man, in a world with so many problems where people have so much pain, why should I feel like I can ask God for a nice guitar? You know, or, or a comfy living space or something like that. Why would I ever have the audacity to ask God for something like that? But I have since become convinced that God actually doesn't want us to think that way. You know, God does want us, I think, to be aware of the suffering in the world. And God does want us to work to alleviate it. And God does want us to count our blessings. And he wants us to have gratitude. And he wants us to be content. But I think he also wants us to allow him to have the chance to bless us in those unnecessary ways. He wants us to 
to be honest with him, just like you would want your kids to be honest with you about things that, that they might want, you know, and, and to ask for those unnecessary nice things. And again, he's not always going to give them. Like a good parent doesn't always give whatever a kid wants. But sometimes a parent delights in giving a kid the thing that he or she is asking for, right? Even though they don't need it. You know, and I think it's important for us to recognize God doesn't just care about our survival. He doesn't just care about us getting by. And I'm, I'm not trying to preach health and wealth gospel here. I'm just saying God also wants us to have fun. God also wants us to enjoy life. He's made this big, beautiful world with so many things to appreciate and enjoy. And he, he wants us to be able to experience that. You know? And he wants us to, to bring our, our desires to him and to be honest about that and, and not to feel bad about, about making requests. You know, I remember hearing a story uh, not too long ago, about some friends who were looking for a place to live. And what they did was they started asking God for ver very specific things in the home that they were looking for. Not things that they needed, but things that they just wanted. You know, things, I don't remember what they were, but it could have been something like a bay window or, you know, a fireplace uh, in a certain area of the house or something like that, or, or, or a garbage disposal. But they started to ask for these specific things, not necessary things, but just things that they would love to have. And then one day, when they were on their house search, they walked into a home, and it had all those things. And they took that as a sign, a blessing from God, that God wanted to give them this, this gift of, these, of answering the specific requests that they were, they were making. And that was a great blessing for them in their lives. So the way I would put it is, we shouldn't feel entitled all the time for God to turn water into wine, or however that may look in our lives. Uh, we shouldn't think that God is always obligated to fix our party when something goes wrong. But we also shouldn't think that he doesn't want us to ever ask for those unnecessary things. All right, so the third and final message of this miracle, and I think this is the most significant one, is Jesus has come to bring us something better than the old religious system. Jesus has come to bring us something better than the old religious system. Now, why do I say that? Well, here's why. Remember, it says that Jesus had the servants fill six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Now, I don't think it's any accident that the gospel writer includes that detail, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Because what he's saying is that these jars symbolize the old religious order, the old establishment. Because in those days, the religious leaders said, you have to ceremonially wash yourself before you eat. Okay, you, you got to make sure that your hands are clean. You got to make sure that what you, you're eating off of has been ceremonially washed and everything. Uh, basically, you have to have this constant concern of purifying yourself in a physical way in order to be okay with God. And what Jesus does is when he turns the water into wine, he's saying this old system of always having to worry about purifying yourself before God, it's being replaced now by something much better. And, you know, that's why the, uh, 
the, uh, the master of the banquet, when he tastes the wine, he says, oh, wow, you saved the best for last. That's the, the story's way of telling us that what Jesus is bringing is so much better than the religious system that everyone's been used to. Um, and you now you might ask, well, okay, why is the wine the symbol of that? Well, we have to remember that Jesus actually chooses to make wine the symbol of his blood, right? The blood that he sheds on the cross. Uh, at the Last Supper, Jesus held up the, the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He basically said, from now on, you're going to have this association between wine and my blood. Uh, the blood that was shed for your sins. And so when Jesus turns that water into wine, it's like saying, the old ceremonial washing um, that's being replaced by the blood that Jesus has shed on the cross. So one way of putting it is that the blood, what this tells us is that the blood Jesus will shed is about to become the only ceremonial washing that we will need. We don't need to purify ourselves over and over and over again in this external way. We don't need to worry about that because what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is bringing is the only ceremonial washing that we're going to need. Now, I know that most of us today don't participate literally in ceremonial washing, right? But there are things we sometimes do that are in the same spirit as ceremonial washing. Um, we ceremonially wash when we try to earn God's love uh, rather than receive it. We ceremonially wash when we try to look spiritual, when we're concerned about looking good to the Christians around us rather than specifically what God thinks. You know, we're just trying to look spiritual. Uh, we ceremonially wash when we focus on rules rather than loving God and loving our neighbor. Now, I'm not saying rules are bad, you know, but rules in themselves are supposed to help us to love God and love our neighbors. And if we're just focused on the rules themselves rather than on the point of the rules, then I'd say we are ceremonially washing rather than doing what we're really supposed to do. And Jesus wants to set us free from all of that. He wants to set us free from hollow, man-made religion. He wants to bring us into a real relationship with God. He wants to bring us into that, that party. So this morning, what I want to do to close is um, I want to give any of us who have never experienced that relationship with God that Jesus offers an opportunity uh, to receive that. Uh, I like to do this every now and then here at church. Um, I know most of us who are here have already accepted the invitation to be in a relationship with Jesus, uh, but I think it's important to provide opportunities for any of us who haven't really come to that point uh, to do that. And so if um, you're at a point in your life where you feel like you're tired of washing yourself all the time and trusting in yourself to get right with God, if you feel like in your life the wine has run out and you need somebody to bring, bring the party back, um, I want to give you an opportunity uh, to receive the relationship that, that Jesus wants to, to offer to you. So let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, I thank you so much for this miracle you, you did and uh, the beautiful messages that are in it. God, I pray that you would help uh, those, mirror, those messages to, um, to hit us anew this morning, uh, that you would speak to us 
through them. And God, right now, I pray for, for anyone in this congregation who uh, has not uh, entered into a relationship with you. And God, right now, I want to I lead them in a prayer to you. Um, Lord, I, I recognize that uh, just like this, this young couple that had this wedding and ran out of wine, that there is shame in my life, and I, I need someone to cover that shame. Uh, God, I recognize that as much as I might try through things like ceremonial washing to try and make myself right, to try and uh, earn favor with you, I recognize that on my own I can't do it. I recognize that if I was, if I was to stand before you, a holy and good God, um, that I would need your grace, I would need your mercy in order to stand. And Lord, I, I trust and believe that you want a relationship with me in spite of my flaws, in spite of my sin. I trust and believe that Jesus Christ, through his shed blood on the cross, has reconciled me to you. I trust and believe, Lord, that you love me in spite of myself. And Lord, I, I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to bring life to the party of, of my life. Um, so, Lord, I, I ask that I would experience uh, fully the joy that you have to offer, Lord. And uh, I welcome you into my life. And, Lord, I pray for any of us here who have prayed that prayer or a prayer like it before. Maybe we've prayed it many times. I just pray, Lord, that the, uh, the beauty of being in relationship with you, um, that we would be reminded of it again this morning. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.